You're listening to Four at the Back, where we look back at our favourite football sides from the Premier League era. From champagne football to shambolic debacles, each week we'll take a nostalgic view of some of the most memorable squads from the annals of our footballing fandom. We'll be light-hearted, shaky on the facts, but who cares? Relive your youth and go with Four at the Back. Right, welcome back to Four at the Back. Uh, this week we're talking about Leeds United and the year is 1999. Manchester United have just won the treble. Um, that's the sort of the overriding football story that I think most of us can remember. But there are a few things going on um, slightly lower down the league. And Leeds had put together a bit of a run in the 1998-99 season. They qualified for the UEFA Cup. And they were a team who, who looked like they meant business. So, um, I guess we start at the start. Um, how did this team come together? It was, it was David O'Leary who had been um, promoted uh, from being George Graham's assistant. George Graham was dismissed in October 1998, I believe. Well, he wasn't dismissed. He, he, he left to go to Spurs, much to, uh, much to my displeasure. There's a whole uh, the around that as well. <laughs> well, I mean, it, you know, it kind of dismissed my club for like two years. So after <laughs> that, um, yeah, yeah, Graham going was was a bit of a sort of um, a blow to Leeds at that point because actually, you know, he'd he'd been doing very well with them, and then you know nobody really expected O'Leary to play this kind of swashbuckling brand of football, being a you know, a sort of big old former centre-half who played for Arsenal. It, you, you didn't really expect him to kind of promote all this youth and, and, and play in the way that they did, but they kind of hit the ground running that year and they and they just never stopped. No one expected O'Leary to get the job, as I recall, never mind play that kind of brand of football. There was a very public flirtation with Martin O'Neill, uh, who eventually turned them down. Uh, but the main thing I remember about the, the Graham uh, side is that there was so much turnover uh, from the uh, the Howard Wilkinson years. Uh, so by the time you get to O'Leary in uh, late 1998 or whenever it was, this is a side that looks so different from the one that went to the League Cup final in 1996. I think there are maybe three or four players uh, hold over in the entire squad and the only first teamers were Gary Kelly and Lucas Radaby. And everybody else is different. So this is a team um, that George Graham has already um, rebuilt to a significant uh, degree, um, largely around the goals of uh, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, who leaves them, what was, what was it, about a week before the start of the season? To Chelsea, yeah. Yeah, it was, I think on the... the to Atletico. Oh, is it to Atletico? Uh, yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah. And he comes back to Chelsea for, with the Abramovich money a couple of years later. Is that right? Yeah, no, that's right. Um, but even Gary Kelly, um, you know, had been replaced by Danny Mills at the beginning of this season uh, that we're talking about here. So, I mean, you're, you're really talking, um, you know, a, a really fresh size. And when you consider the youngsters, um, you know, they, they obviously had Woodgate um, internally, Alan Smith from, from their own academy. Um, you know, Paul Robinson was starting to come through as well. Uh, and then 
you know, they'd spent big money on Michael Bridges um, from Sunderland, only 21 at the time. Harry Kuehl, I think, was uh, 20 or 21 at the time. Um, so it really was a, a sort of a young side sort of forming. Um, and you had, obviously, Razabi and Nigel Martin as the sort of, as the veterans in the... Nigel Martin, uh, one of the last acts of the Howard Wilkinson era is signing Howard, Mar- uh, Howard Martin, Nigel Martin. So that's quite a good uh, going away present when you think about it that way. You sign uh, the, the man they eventually vote the greatest keeper in Leeds history. A um, couple of months later, he's out of a job, but uh, that's not bad going, really. Uh, There's a game, actually, in that season against Roma uh, in the UEFA Cup where he basically saves about 15 uh brilliant totty chips and long shots it's just like uh, one of those key performances that just seems really really memorable particularly as it's totty that is getting frustrated the, the start of the season obviously Hasselbank's left they've brought in Michael Bridges for five million pounds from Sunderland but he's largely unproven I think he'd scored a few goals at the back end of that season and if I'm if I remember rightly Sunderland had gone down um and so they cashed Usually. on Bridges um, I don't think it was necessarily their intention to make Bridges the the focal point of their attack at that point. Um, obviously, with Hasselbein gone, they didn't have much of a choice. Um, and fortunately, he came good very quickly, I think. Uh, first game of the season, he scores a hat-trick uh, <laughs> against, uh, against Southampton. Um, and he, he, he scores that ridiculous... He scores that ridiculous volley where he sort of juggles it and then sort of bangs it in uh from there and he, then he scores a tap in and a header and and yeah he just it, i think he has a drought between kind of like november and january um but yeah he's just really really good all season and it, he is one of the real you know sad um stories of of, of english football in the 2000s because you know you you, you look mm-hmm. at him in that season and you just think what might have been it's always him and Dean Ashton, I think of as uh, lost great English strikers who, you know, were forced to retire very, very early. Um, and uh, both of them would have been a great compliment to sort of Wayne Rooney, who's come through a couple of years later, but it wasn't to be. Yeah, I mean, Bridges Bridges scored 19 goals those, that season. They were the only goals he scored in the league for, for Leeds. Um, and then he'd... I think at the end of his contract in 2004, he ends up at Newcastle for a few months, doesn't score, makes makes no impact at all. Um, he goes to Bolton briefly and then ends up sort of having a bit of a resurgence in Australia at the end. But he was, he was never the same player after. No, he has to he has to drop down the divisions, doesn't he, to to, get, to really get a game even after Leeds. That's how Carlisle, I think he ends up at. Carlisle and Hull and and that's where he's kind of how badly undone he is by injuries he goes from um they they ran a um a feature in one of the magazines I can't remember which one uh, players who you will see at the 2006 World Cup and amongst all the old uh favorites one the one of the ones they were really highlighting was Michael Bridges uh and at the time I think he was at Carlisle so it, it just shows how in a way that I don't think we have quite n- nowadays the way that injuries could just completely blight a career back then. Yeah, it's just at the it's just at the cusp of that, isn't it? You know, like uh, when's it? Casiraghi had that career-ending injury. It's about ninety-seven, isn't it? Um, no, it's a year after this. I remember him, and I remember Luke Nillis was was it was it Luke Nillis? Yeah, he was they played, were the... played for Villa. 
Yeah, they were the same season. They were like a couple of weeks apart, Kasaragi and Nellis. Right, and and, and yeah. you, know, you you kind of you kind of don't get that um, you know anymore in quite the same way with how much sports science has has moved on. Um, but yeah, it's 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 mad to think. I mean, I saw an interview with Mike Owen recently where he was talking about um, how they didn't surgically repair hamstrings back in the day, and he played you know the rest of his career with essentially you know three functioning hamstrings instead of four um and uh you know that just wouldn't happen now you know it'd be surgically repaired and and you know he probably wouldn't have lost you know that that, that yard of pace that that made him michael owen so um it it is an interesting little transition period again you know um you know ashton's injury i think was a knee uh and again probably would be quite quite treatable nowadays Harry Kuehl looks sort of absolutely the sense of everything that Leeds do, certainly in the first half of this season. And he was, what, 20, 21 years old? We, we spoke last week about uh, Ryan Giggs and his impact at that age. I, I mean, Kuehl was in the centre of everything. He was scoring from distance. He was the playmaker. Everything went through him. It was weird to see a good Australian at that point. You know, it's not... Not something we'd ever see. Not something we've really seen since, unless you count Christian Vieri, of course. <laughs> Tim Cahill's decent for Everton, but yeah. Uh, Cahill was a bit after, though, wasn't it? You know. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah. Said, you said you haven't seen anything since, so well, I was just countering your... Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, obviously, uh, Leeds would get another Australian uh, down the line, but uh, yeah, it was fantastic footballer he could dribble had a really good mind for the ball could shoot it was just a, a really good all-round attacker the best is australian that we'd seen in the premier league at that point would probably be what mark schwarzer yeah i mean schwarzer is a really really good keeper isn't he i think john john aloisi is playing for for coventry in this season i believe uh and he and he he was always about sort of, he was always seen as being, you know, because he scored tons of goals for the Australian national team, Aloisi, but he never quite had any impact in the Premier League. Um, but Harry Kuehl... Fortunich had, had an impact, didn't he? I mean, in more ways than one. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah we've, uh, we, we discussed that a little while ago, didn't we, Neil? <laughs> yeah, we certainly did. Um, like, I, I feel like um, Harry Kuehl, you know, he was he was just such a clever player. Um, he was one of the first people to kind of... Um, you know, understand things like changing the offside rule. I mean, there's a goal he scores against Spurs in this season where he, um, you know, he's kind of, uh, you know, play. he plays himself onside by basically, you know, not interfering with play, getting a little rebound and kind of running in on goal. And, you know, sort of Spurs defence just kind of stand around and let him do it, um, thinking he's offside, but he actually isn't. So he, he, he had a very clever, um, you know, mind for what was going on on the pitch, I think. And, um, if he didn't quite achieve his potential, I mean, he certainly uh, gave us some really great moments in those those kind of three seasons or so. Obviously, after the the Leeds thing ran its course, he moved on to Liverpool, and I, I, he'd, he'd had a, I think there were one or two injuries he'd had, but he, he never reproduced the, the, the sort of the form that he did in the Leeds shirt. Um, any thoughts as to why that was? I, 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 the thing that sort of strikes me is that he was never sort of seen as the key playmaker in that Liverpool side. The question is, is in part, do you believe him? Because it, he really left Leeds under a cloud. 
Uh, and when he left and went to Liverpool, he said oh, that by the end they were ostracising me and they didn't, you know, the people wouldn't talk to me. And um, and he even went as far as to say that medical staff at least made my injuries worse. So how much of that you believe has got to have a bearing on what happened to him in the next couple of years? Because if you buy into that, well, that explains probably why he never really did it again at, at Liverpool. But if you don't, then you have to look for other explanations, I guess. That sounds quite mental to me. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> that's nuts. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there, there, there were glimpses now and then, weren't there, at Liverpool? But you know, he wasn't—he wasn't the big fish in the pond there, was he? You know, um, I mean, he, you look he, at his his strike rate. So over those sort of over those clubs, I mean, I think he's, he'd score a goal every sort of three and a half games for Leeds. It was more sort of a game, a goal every eight games for Liverpool, mm. and then he goes to Galatasaray and he's back to sort of one in three again. So. I know it's not the same sort of standard of league in Turkey, but you know it, it, something was clearly it was not the same player. I think the other thing is that he was playing for Benitez, and you know Benitez sort of had him. Play, I mean, Benitez's wingers always played so defensively and and had mm. to do an awful lot of tracking back, and so you're basically asking Harry Kuehl to be the kind of pre-version of Dirk Cow. Um, and, you know, yeah. it's no surprise, really, that his output dropped because, you know, Benitez didn't see those positions as being attacking positions. You know, he he liked to attack through the middle and and really the wide midfielders were kind of cover for the fullbacks. So, you know, that's another reason, really. I mean, looking at some of the other uh, players across the park, I mean, Lee Bowyer is the uh, is pr- probably the one we remember most about from that time, probably not necessarily just because of the football um, but he was good this year. Like he, he seemed to be everywhere. Excellent. Like he was. Um, again, we're talking about sort of the impact Ryan Giggs had on the, the Man United team from '93-'94. Bowyer had a similar effect in terms of his ability to score goals and being in the right place and and, and things like that. He was. He probably embodied that that sort of the spirit of that Leeds team more than anybody. Yeah, it was a serious box-to-box midfielder, Bowie. You know, he could mix it up, but he could get forward. He could create and score goals. Really good player, especially uh, in his younger days. I mean, he, he's he's still young here, isn't he? I mean, he, he goes from Charlton uh, to Leeds, makes an immediate impact. I mean, he scored, scored bags of goals for Charlton, went to Leeds, did the same. I mean, I, I think he was a really good player all the way through. I mean, he ends up at West Ham at a certain point as well. Um and, and he never lost that engine. He, he he kind of had that right up until the end. And of course now he's he's making his way in management um, and uh, and doing pretty well with that too. So it's, it's interesting. I mean, his career obviously had a you know a, a massive cloud cast over it by you know what happened with him and Woodgate in in the town centre uh, on that fateful evening. Um, but but taking all of that aside, like. He, he was that quintessential British box-to-box midfielder. And came with big shoes to fill as well, because uh, him and Lee Sharp signed roughly the same sort of time, I think. And it was with the uh, the idea that they'd be the replacements for, for Gary McAllister and Gary Speeds, who are, you know, not slouches when it comes to Leeds United history. Um, no, absolutely not. And obviously, I mean, Sharp had Sharp left by this point. Had he moved on to Bradford by now? Yeah. He yes. Got, he got moved yeah. On, yeah. I, I think the, the, 
So. I was just going to say that there's a trio of players that move on to Bradford when they get promoted in the previous summer from Leeds. It's obviously a, a short commute. Uh, Gunnar, Haller and um, Weatherall also got a Leeds at the same time. Mm-hmm. So not to Leeds, to Bradford. Sorry. And in fact, Weatherall uh, helps them out as well uh, because he scores, I think it's against Liverpool, uh, which is what actually gets Leeds third place. On the last day, and then Bradford stay up, don't they? Yeah, and and that actually helped Leeds out. So the old boy coming good. Um, I think uh, the thing that most surprised me, and I watched the highlights back of this season. Um, I'd forgotten how good Eric Backer was. Yeah, yeah. I, I was. You know, at the, at the end of last week, we joked about a couple of players who who we thought would be sort of the the Darren Ferguson of of this Leeds United side, and. Um, yeah, Eric Backer and Stephen McPhail played quite a big part in this season. And that's the thing is that they just they they, yeah, they had these young guys in, and you know I think the thing that was important with Backer is he was just all you know he was all action up and down the flank. He, he covered defensively. He was getting into the box late, and, and he he has a real sort of goal scoring run um, in the middle of that season. And then McPhail, yeah, has that 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 game where he scores a brace. Um, you know, with Andy Gray cooing over his cool finish when he kind of arrives late in the box. Um, they, they really did sort of just uh, put all the young guys out on the park and, and let them play. And it was a pretty standard 4-4-2, but they were all young and fit and they could race about. And it was kind of, it was too much for a lot of teams. And I think when I watched it, what really stood out to me was the sheer pace that they played at. Like, they were really intense. I mean, it's not quite Klopp's Dortmund, but... It wasn't all that far off, in a way. The thing about Backer is he was never meant to be playing as well. It, it, it was a necessity because uh, he was bought as a project. And then uh, I forget what the injury is to David Batty, but he starts the season with that holding role. Um, for the lack of a better term, I think that's probably slightly doing a disservice to what either of them played. But um, the, the steal in the midfield to let everyone else go and play. Uh, was it his Achilles that Batty injures? Uh, but long story short, Backer comes in at a necessity and because um, they don't have that many other players. That's the other thing that people sometimes forget about this lead side. Uh, and he not only does the same job that Batty was doing, but he starts chipping in with the goals as well. And as you say, he gets on that run and I think he ends with about eight goals. I think it's worth saying at this point that obviously it's not the squad game that it is now. Uh, back in, back in, I mean, you know, United have got strength and depth but most teams have got there's a first 11 and maybe sort of two or three others you'd rely on and then it's it's kids i mean that is one of the interesting things for me is that is that you know huckabee makes a fair few sort of telling contributions off the bench you know he's obviously kept out the side by uh, bridges and kill but he um you know, and and Alan Smith, but he does uh, he does make some real telling contributions, particularly early in the season and then late in the season. Um, he plays on the left a lot, doesn't he? And he he kind of does his sort of, yeah his poor man's Michael Owen or Michael Owen tribute act, um, just just letting his his pace sort of take him beyond people, um, and and you know he was a slightly limited player, but he had that one great attribute which was his pace, and uh, it did. It, it did play dividends um, for them at times. I sort of uh, have slightly odd feelings about um, about the transfer, though, because they pay £4 million for him, uh, and he ends up making more appearances from the bench than the start. And £4 million was a big chunk of money oh, in yeah. 1999 still. And I look at that and think, 
in many ways, Darren Huckabee is kind of patient zero for where Leeds are going in the next year or two. We'll we'll come back to that because yeah, it's 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 sort of an interesting uh, it's an interesting thing sort of bubbling away in the background. The other player they bring in sort of over the course of the season is um, is Jason Wilcox uh, from Blackburn, and he, he I mean he seems to slot in again quick. Um, makes so he assists he scores he's he seemed to sort of make a decent contribution but you don't really sort of remember him that vividly from that period i mean he was no, at the, the end of his career really or coming towards mm-hmm. the end of it i mean he'd obviously been a title winner at blackburn um and they bring him in for a bit of experience and i think it does help the young guys out to have someone that's been there and done it um on the pitch with them he, he almost becomes a bit of a a bit of a childminder for for want of a better term and you know he still had some quality he, you know he plays a bit of a different role to what he played for Blackburn because him and Stuart Ripley for Blackburn their role was basically to, to shuttle down the touchline get to the byline and whip in a cross for, for Shearer or Sutton um, whereas Wilcox here is kind of uh, playing a bit more inverted you know he, he's kind of uh, he's, he's wandering in field a lot more than mm. he ever did for Blackburn and, and maybe that's his experience that he's got the confidence to kind of go and play where he needs to play. But he, you know, he's he's somebody who you know who definitely helps them to that third place by by coming in and lending that that wise head. And it gets him back into the England reckoning as well. He, he actually starts uh, adding to his limited, but you know, more than most people will ever win number of England caps. Uh, during this time at Leeds, I think it might actually be Howard Wilkinson who calls him up in the weird caretaker role. But, uh, One of my favourite players. About that. Oh. Sorry, you Matt, forgot. What did you say? I, I'd forgotten about that. Howard Wilkinson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's one of the rare, one, weird moments of history. Uh, there's lots of these little caretakers that you forget about. Um, one of my favourite players from this time, and I, I, I don't know why he's one of my favourite players, but um, Ian Hart, um, oh. who was Gary Kelly's nephew, <laughs> which at the time sort of struck me as being, what? And it made me think Gary Kelly was like 10, 15 years old. And you look at them, it's like they look the same. Um, and it turns out they're only three years older, and obviously Gary Kelly's only about three years older, and um, Gary Kelly's only forty-six now. Let's say he was forty-six then, surely. <laughs> I, I can't get my head around it. Um, he's, he's the Premier League's Benjamin Button. Um, so I mean, but Ian Hart had an absolute hammer of a left foot. He really did great. But great quality on dead balls. I mean, that was that's what you really remember was the free kicks, and uh, he's you know he he still had that right to the end of his career as well. He was still banging them in when he was you know right into his late thirties. Um, but yeah, he 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 was somebody who you know was that modern fullback, you know, and he he, he kind of he he sort of followed on from when we were talking about Dennis Irwin last time around. You know, another Irish left back who. Uh, who had great quality and and scored a free kick, but you know Hart took it to to, to another level. Um, obviously had a very good Republic career as well, and you know went to the 2002 World Cup. Um, you know when they they acquitted themselves really really well um, in Japan and South Korea, and yeah he he was he was a super player. 
I think he, I mean, we were just talking about Jason Wilcox. I think one of the things that, you know, Wilcox was able to cut inside a lot and you often had Hart sort of overlapping and he was such a threat going forward. Um, you know, they, they couldn't help. And he also, he had a right foot as well. I remember seeing one of those goals fly in from about 25 yards off his right foot. Yeah, um, I mean, I just remember that uh, he'd he'd been around a little bit. Uh, it's one of the things that they did is uh, they him and Kewell, I think, were, were around for about five years before they became regulars, and they were allowed to, to blood themselves into the team. But because he was that's be- true, Harry Kewell was twenty years old during this season. Well, he was on the books as a kid. Um, yeah. He was a, so as I say, he was, and I think he made about two appearances as a sixteen-year-old. Yeah. Uh, like as I say, when I, when I said earlier on that there was like four players from the '96 side, um, two of them were first teamers and two of them were kids. I think they were Hart and Kewell. I mean, I'd have to double check that. But I, if I was, you know, you told me to stick a fiver on it, that's what that's what I'd say was right. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> they were allowed. Yeah, yeah, I'd probably bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, so he was allowed to develop for a few years. And though there's a little tussle over the right-back position over the course of this season, he's nailed on uh, the previous year and this year and probably the year after. I don't re- remember there being any real competition to Ian Hart, which right. makes it funny that it just sort of ends there. Yeah, he, um, you know, he, uh, he'd nailed that spot down, hadn't he? Whereas, you know, Danny Mills's form was so good that he did completely displace Gary Kelly, um, you know, from that right-back role. Um and it kind of makes well, sense. Did he? Certainly by the next season he had. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, my recollection is that they, they started Mills because uh, Gary Kelly had that bad injury the year before, which is why they went out and bought Danny Mills. And then after about September, it had reverted and Danny Mills had been shifted into centre-back, weirdly, and then dropped pretty much entirely for the rest of the year. And he only makes a handful of appearances. I mean, I is may, that not right? I may I may be thinking about the next. I mean, certainly by the next season, because of course he, you know, he he gets to the point where he, um, you know, he gets England yeah. recognition and uh, goes to know, the World Cup and is brilliant. Exactly. And, yeah. So playing yeah. alongside Rio, who he's obviously played for, um, with Leeds as well. So I mean, he was a really good buy, Danny Mills, I mean, and and obviously kind of Gary Kelly had a, a, yeah, the veteran savvy to uh, maybe to keep him out for a bit, but eventually, because um, I mean, the other interesting thing is that. Like the United side that we talked about last time, this Leeds side was very much a case of by British uh, or Brit or very least Irish. You know, it's a- apart from you know Razzaby and Backer, it's kind of you got and and Q, I guess, but you got lots and lots of English players in there. You know, you buy Bridges, young English guy, Smith and Woodgate, English guys through the academy. You buy Danny Mills. Um, you know, Gary Kelly, obviously he's already there Irish, Ian Hart's there Irish, but, you know, like you say, he's been in the, the club setup. Um, it, it can really look at something like Chelsea, it's completely different, isn't it? It's a very oh. sort of British and Northern European look inside. I think this is the season where Chelsea field a team entirely of, non, of, of non-English players. And it's the first time it happens. Yeah. Um, so the, the sort of the, the country's going a little bit mad about the fact that teams like Chelsea and Arsenal and United are, are full of are full of foreign talent and they're sort of holding back 
um, English talent, and then you've got a, a club like Leeds who are investing in English talent, and I, and I suppose to some extent, as as a neutral uh, to to a large extent, you kind of I suppose you're almost willing them on a little bit because of that. Yeah, I think it's fair to say them. it's fair to say they were they were they were pretty popular. Um, not in the not in the northwest. I I, <laughs> I dare say I'm pretty sure you know United and Liverpool wouldn't be saying that they were uh, rooting for Leeds in any sense whatsoever. But 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 certainly like as a as a southerner and as somebody that that has literally no loyalty to to, to any northern club. It's kind of if if a team put together a team, you know, sort of a squad of players that I like watching, then then as a neutral, you kind of think, you know, I'd like them to do better. And, you know, there was a lot of of schadenfreude in them, you know, doing better than Liverpool, for example. Um, and they they were just really exciting to watch and, and their games were often thrilling. And they had that youthful naivety, which was their downfall as well as you know, as well as a strength, but they did just go for it. Um, pretty much hell for leather every game. There's a game in January, I think it's January 2000, where, so January is kind of where the wheels come off a little bit for for Leeds. And at a, at a time when United, uh, Manchester United are away at the Club World Championship, that would have been the opportunity to really put some distance between themselves and the um, and the, the defending champions. But they, they come unstuck and, they, um, there's a game against Everton where it finishes four all, and it it looks it, and it's one of those games that I think makes you think they're not going to do it. Yeah. I remember the game you mean. It, it's a little earlier in the season than that, I think, but I remember the game you mean. Uh, it comes in the midst of a really good winning run where they beat Spurs, they beat Borough, they beat Newcastle, and then they go and just. Um, not only concede a bunch of stupid goals against Everton, if that's if I'm remembering right, I think Hutchison in particular taps one in from like a yeah. yard out. Um, but they go away and, and throw it away in, in injury time as well. Um, the David Weir goal, and that's yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, and it's a, it's a ludicrous game in a sense, and it does uh, act almost as a harbinger of what's going to come when you get to that point in January and February where the the side is knackered. I think it's fair to say. You know they have only got 19 players uh, that that turn out for them across the course of the season, and they are with the UEFA Cup as well, completely ruined by the time they have to play Arsenal and Villa and Liverpool and, o- O'Leary, and Man United. O'Leary kind of you know sort of tried to downplay their chances as well. I think in a kind of effort to take the pressure off. You know he says no, we can't win the UEFA Cup. You know no, we can't win the Championship. You know we're just we're a young side, we're still developing. I'm a young manager, I'm still developing. And he tries to play the sort of psychological um, game that way. And I guess you might say it worked because they do finish with Liverpool in the end. Uh, but it is something that's very tight and comes down um, right to the end. And, um, you know, if there was a mistake, it might have been in imagining it would be easy to just go, go and repeat that third place. I mean, we'll briefly talk about about Europe because, I mean, again, just talking back to last week a little bit, we we talked about how much of a struggle it was for Manchester United in sort of the early 90s, and it becomes a little bit easier um, for, for for English clubs to do well in Europe with um, there's there's some changes um, in regulations around freedom of mu- movement of 
um, EU uh, nationals, um, and then the Bosman uh, the Bosman ruling sort of blows the whole thing wide open as well. So now there's not really the restrictions. We've already said that the majority of Leeds squad is is sort of British based anyway. Although had they operated in those times, then the likes of you know Hart and Kelly wouldn't have been able to play. Um, Kewell wouldn't have been, you know they, they would have had to pick between them. Now they don't have to. Um, although the fact that 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 entire team is playing, it must have been something like 55 games in that season. Um, they'll have run out, of, and, and they did run out of steam um, a little bit. Um, but they they did all right in Europe this season, and they did all right in Europe the following season. I mean, they got all the way to the semi-finals of the UEFA Cup, and um, you know they they obviously the the problem they had was they went away to Galatasaray and. Fan got stabbed. Two fans two got fans murdered. Were, yeah, that's yeah, right. And, gamble. You know, they, they lose 2-0 away. That incident happens. Then they've got to play two weeks later um, at Ellen Road. And um, they draw 2 all. Um, and it's obviously not enough. But, you know, you could see from from where they were lining up that, that their, you know, their kind of, their heads weren't, weren't in that game. And, um you know, oh, Georgie, Georgie Hadji scored in that game. I mean, he was still playing in 2000, which is slightly wild. Um, so, yeah, that was obviously a, a, a great run. And then, of course, the next year, they <laughs> they um, they they go all the way to the semi-finals of the Champions League, um, only losing to uh, Valencia in the semi-finals. And that was a really good Valencia side, by the way. Um, a good cult side we might do down the line, mate. Um, was, was that the Benitez Valencia scene? Or is that a different uh, manager at that point? Do you know? I think it might be. Um, I need to double check that. Um, yeah, uh, Philly Buster. While I just check that. <laughs> well, while, you, while you're checking that, I've uh, double checked my Harry Kewell facts, and it, he made his debut on uh, the 30th of March, 1996, against Middlesbrough. Christ on a bike. I suppose this, this is what happened in those squads, though. I mean, with without the sort of the depth if, if and particularly towards the end of the season when there was nothing left to play for you'd you'd often have teams sort of blooding a few youngsters here and there wouldn't you so yeah i suppose yeah. it's not that much of a surprise it was the, um, that's the hector Cooper um valencia era um but they obviously had they obviously had um benitez came in the year afterwards because Cooper went to inter ah but they obviously had that. I mean, just just briefly on that Valencia team, uh, they had some real cult players in there, like Canazares in goal, uh, Deschamps Men- yeah. playing at the end of his career, Menzietta, yeah, um, oh, man, yeah, player. Roberto Ayala, um, yeah, really, uh, really fun team that was. They sound a bit dirty. Imar as well, yeah, Pablo <laughs> Imar as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, no, if you if you want lots of Argentinians number Argentinian number tens that will kick you, then uh, they were the team for you. Um, there were a few there were a few teams in Spain at the time who had uh, th- that raft of Argentinian number tens, wasn't it? Oh, the, um, yeah. There was just an endless supply of the next Maradona, wasn't there, coming out uh, in in the nineties? <laughs> then they were all trying to stop Real Madrid, so you had to have people who were prepared to kick kick people. Raquel May stands out as another one Raquel of those. Yeah, yeah, a couple of years oh, later. That Very transfer late. window classic. Uh, Raquel May, uh, Ortega. Like, like, it, was, oh, it was just Ortega. a long line of them. 
And then when Messi came out, everyone was kind of like, oh, it's another one. And then, uh, oops, yeah, yeah. No, he, yeah, he was well yeah. cast. <laughs> he genuinely did turn out to be the best player of all time. <laughs> but, yeah, the trouble is, uh, loads of those players were really, really good. They just, you know, when you call the next Maradona, it kind of... Uh, yeah, a mockery it's hard to live up. I mean, if you think about the fact that no English footballer has lived up to being the next Paul Gascoigne, um, you know, it, <laughs> it, 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 it just it just shows you, you know, kind of what the bar is to Argentina and England. But uh, I mean, you'd, you'd argue that even Paul Gascoigne struggled to live up to being Paul Gascoigne. So I don't know what chance anyone else had. Yeah, I mean, pure, purely in talent terms, you, you, you'd have to say Gazza, you know, Gazza was the sort of, you know, the, the most talented English footballer of the last you know, 30 years, 40 years, but, but you know, anyway, we're going off track. Um, <laughs> another another English uh, English footballer um, who was very talented and didn't fulfil his potential, ultimately, apart, we talked about Michael Bridges earlier on, but um, Alan Smith, um, you know, he kind of looked, he kind of, he played a little bit like Mark Hughes, I always thought. He kind of, you know, he put himself about, but he was a very cute finisher um, and just seemed to, you know, to have that kind of awareness of angles that, that, that Mark Hughes had. And um, obviously that, that really freak leg break that he had where, wasn't it like in a defensive wall or something and he, he, his leg got broken like by the ball? It was something weird like that. And it was, it was, it was a horrendous injury. Um, and then he went to United and, and obviously Leeds fans have never forgiven him. Well, they and and the United thing was a bit. I suppose a bit. It was a bit weird at the time, simply because it was Leeds to Manchester United. But they kind of tried to reimagine him as a defensive midfielder, as a kind of natural successor to Roy Keane. And it was, well, I that suppose, was trying to harness some of that sort of natural aggression that he that was undoubtedly part of his game. But it by the time he he leaves United and he he came to Newcastle. At sort of the back end of the decade, and he was he was neither one thing or the other by then. He had to move into midfield because you know he'd lost the yard and he, and he 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 couldn't run. Yeah, and he, he you know he it was like watching a player that that kind of I mean I always think about I mean like Rooney towards the end of his career when they moved him into midfield and he didn't really know how to do it, but obviously he was yeah. a good footballer, so he made the best of it, and it, that was kind of the same with Alan Smith really. Alan Smith playing in that sort of probably after he moved to Leeds, it was a bit like signing someone on football manager for a record fee and then seeing him get about 6.5 every week. Like, he was just... He was never terrible, but he was never particularly effective either. Um, it was... It was and it was a bit of a sad ending for um, for a player who, you know... Yeah, we talked about Lee Bowyer sort of embodying that, that spirit and Smith was just as much a part of it. And... Um, you know, of that team that was dismantled um, upon their relegation in 2004, that was the one that stung the most for Leeds because he was a he was a product of their academy. Uh, he, you know, he'd, he'd obviously had his best days with them when when they were sort of up fighting for uh, for the Champions League and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, a bit of a sad ending for for Alan Smith, and I guess his sort of his career, you know, although he'd go on to play for United and I remember him scoring an absolute screamer against Roma in the Champions League for United, um, went on to play for Newcastle. I think he ended up at MK Dons to end his career. Um, 
he was he never really tasted anything like the success that he he had as a player um, at Leeds. Obviously, he he won medals at, uh, at at Manchester United, but he was never sort of the same. He had the, didn't have the same effectiveness at uh, at any of those clubs um, after that. I mean, if you look at that Leeds that Leeds team, they all have terrible luck. I mean, it, it really does look like a curse because it does, doesn't it? You know, Woodgate was probably you know the sort of most talented defender you know just purely out of like positioning you know pace you know he looked like an absolute world beater and it's no surprise that that Real wanted him um but he just couldn't stay fit and you know he was half decent when he went to Spurs but again he just you know he was in and out of the team because he was just he was he was hardly ever fit um you know, obviously, Michael Bridge talks about, and Smith talks about both terrible injuries. You know, I mean, even, you know, even when they when they buy sort of Robbie Fowler, he, he's Fowler's not even that old at that point. But again, injuries have just robbed him of that that yard that he had, um, and, and they just seem to have terrible, terrible luck um, for the for the most part. Apart from, you know, when they do go down, the very young boys. You know, Aaron Lennon and uh, James Milner, obviously they're the ones that escape and go and do really, really well elsewhere. I'm going to throw another name in there. Uh, there's the guys who have uh, really terrible luck in a sense, and that's Lucas Radaby. Uh, he comes in uh, in a really weird thing. He's only signed in whenever it is, 95, um, as part of the deal to bring in Philemon Masinga. It's like to to make Masinga come and be happy, they bring in Radaby as well. A year later, Masinga's gone, and Radaby goes on to be club captain and becomes first choice under George Graham and and starts forty six times this season and all these good things. Uh, turns down, it moves away to Milan and Man United. Uh, Alex Ferguson says, says everyone who understands football would be interested in signing Lucas Radaby and turns down all these moves to stay at Leeds and gets those hideous injuries that everybody else got and has to retire. Uh, 2004 2005 not long after the relegation anyway um I mean, begs the question i mean you, we talk about i mean harry kewell saying that the Leeds united medical staff made his injuries worse it doesn't sound like they knew a huge amount about what they were doing i mean Al, Al, <laughs> harland's basically um uh, has his career ended by roy Keane as well oh, as, yeah. uh, famously so yeah it wasn't good to play for leeds uh if you wanted to stay um healthy at that point yeah you have to think you know somebody you know walked over a you know a native american burial ground or something it's it's a it's a remarkable run of bad luck quite apart from the financial mismanagement that ended up happening and it's not just injury it's like michael dubry goes to leeds to renew his career and ends up stuck behind woodgate radaby and then they sign rio ferdinand the next year well that's because he wasn't very good i mean i think with dubry well they spent nearly five million on him. Uh, he was very good. No, but it cle- well, clearly he was bought in with the idea he would play. Yeah, what I'm thinking. And yeah. then he doesn't. He's, he's all. The, the thing about Dubry was that he obviously had that one really good season at Chelsea when he first broke into the team. Uh, just at that point where they're starting to buy all those foreigners, um, and he just he never kicked on. And I and I think the word on him was always that he he didn't want it enough, or or that because it came quite easily for him in the beginning that he then didn't work very hard. And it's almost like the opposite of John Terry, you know, because when John Terry came in, uh, he wanted it so much. And, and that's, 
you know, that sort of desire thing that I think Juve probably lacked. And he was probably quite happy to pick up a wage on the bench. Um, ultimately, it's that sort of almost he becomes the English Winston Bogard, doesn't he? <laughs> so, saw him in Leicester Square once, the size of his head, my word. <laughs> he had a but, proper, yeah, no, he, he, was a, he was a good young prospect, but it just, you know, I, I think, I, to be honest, that it's kind of the story for a lot of English uh, centre-halves. You know, even to this day, when you look at them, they never quite fulfil the potential of like quite how good they can be. Whenever you see the next good one coming along, it's like, right, I'll have him. I, I, and and I've, I've said this for so many young English centre-halves for Arsenal over that that period. Right, we should sign him, we should sign him. I, I, I actually think the first one was John Terry, and that was in that, that era, just before Abramovich. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is the guy that takes over Tony Adams. We need to sign him. And, uh, you know, I, I just think of Dubry was another one. You know, I'll back up what Neil said earlier. You know, Woodgate going to Real Madrid, it's not... That wasn't an anomaly by any stretch of the imagination. It was a fantastic centre half with so much potential, and it, it just didn't, you know, quite quite come through. I think of, you know, going forward a bit, Michael Richards. You know, that guy I thought was going to be a world beater. Um, it, it, Jones, no. Yeah, I was going to say Smallin and um, Bill Jones. Smalling and Phil Jones, when United signed them, you know, they were the two hottest young centre-halves in the game. And you'd think, you know, you'd bet good money on them being, you know, top-level centre-halves for a long time. And, you know, and like you say, now now we've, we've have, have Stones that is, that is there. But, yeah, I mean, you know, Dubry was there. He had the potential, but yeah, it just didn't really happen for him. My favourite Michael Jibri, um anecdote, which is a strange category, admittedly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you, ha- you have more than one. Uh, yeah, but there's um, so when when uh, I always want to hear them all. Yeah, when when Hullet was uh, obviously moved back to play sweeper uh, for Chelsea, uh, there was a uh, a game where uh, Hullet recalls that um, he chested the ball down. Uh, in his own penalty box, as as, as you would being Ruth Hullet, and this. and sort of flicks it uh, towards Michael Dubry, uh, like you know, in their own sort of penalty box, and Dubry looks at him with horror, says, "What the fuck are you doing?" and boots it in the stands. <laughs> <laughs> I now, think that really sums up the difference between <laughs> continental defend- defensive work and. Uh, and British defensive work, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, where Chelsea were going at that stage, he, he was never going to stay there like that, was he? In hindsight, Leeds was the wrong move for him. He needed to go to someone in the bottom half of the league where he could have been the main man in centre-half, and it didn't matter if he gave away a goal about once a month. He should have uh, gone to Newcastle. He sounds like Titus Bramble. Well, Bramble was a big, expensive move, wasn't he, at the time? He was, yeah. I mean, I... I uh, yeah, as a as a Newcastle fan, um, centre halves were never really our thing. I mean, we tried to win the league with Darren Peacock, so um, wasn't he quite good? Yeah, I, he I was just, all right. Yeah, I mean, you know, he, he was limited, but he was all right. I think um, sort of well, retro- so was so was Steve Bruce. Yeah, I think retrospectively, people are a bit unfair to uh, to, to, to Darren Peacock and Steve Howie. 
I mean, to to be, I mean, I think they're they're quite unfair to that that Newcastle back line for for that season. I mean, we had some shockers later on. I mean, boom song, bramble, you name it. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm just going to anticipate something we'll probably end up talking about at some point. Was we're on about Newcastle centre halves. Um, eventually, Jonathan Woodgate will join Newcastle. Um, I actually think, I mean, this season we've um, we've got the Newcastle 2002-2003 um, side to talk about because that's sort of the, the the definitive sort of Bobby Robson side. Um, I, I can't remember if Woodgate, I'll have to read up on it, if Woodgate comes into that side or if it's the season after because um, obviously he has, he has a, a short spell at Real Madrid. But um, You're the ones who sell him to Madrid, is that not right? Um, I, I, do you know what? It all comes, all comes a blur. Yeah, I think you're right, actually. Yeah, so we yeah. must have had him that season. Because I think Leeds sell him to you, and Terry Venables basically resigns in protest, and that's like the the final nail in the Leeds coffin. But I think we're, I'm probably jumping ahead slightly there. Yeah, yeah. We're, I mean, we, I mean, it, it's um, it's interesting. We, you, we've hinted a few times at the sort of the the financial meltdown that happens at Elland Road, um, yeah. and I guess it's worth pointing out that. I suppose this this sort of discussion we've had is probably the first half of a two-part story mm. um, because obviously a few years later um, Leeds financially and um, they financially capitulate and uh, they end up being relegated and they literally only just put it right. Um, so yeah, we we will we'll freely admit we will jump on every bandwagon going. Uh, we're on the Leeds United bandwagon at the moment because uh, they've obviously just come back to the Premier League and um, given us a, a hugely entertaining match against Liverpool over the weekend. Unless you're entertained by defending. Uh, again, Newcastle fan, no idea what it is. Um, so, um, but yeah, Liverpool I mean, were, were awful in that game. Just, I mean, changing subject very briefly. Uh, they defended like. Not champions, let's say. Yeah, Joe, Joe Gomez was shocking in that game, like absolutely shocking. It's going to be an interesting year, isn't it? Mm. Um, but yeah, going back to sort of the the Leeds thing. I mean, what happened to Leeds was they they began living above their means, and um, in what should have been a cautionary tale to a number of clubs over sort of the probably from about 1999 onwards, probably up to about 2010. Oh, it's still going uh, on today, isn't it? I mean, oh, it's it's still going on, but you know, at, you there's at... so much money around that it's you know it it almost and the Premier League now protect a lot of these clubs with sort of parachute payments. I think this there wasn't really um that. the problem with Leeds is they basically bet on um Champions on League again. Champions yeah. football as as a kind of guarantee, and they actually sacked O'Leary. Because he didn't reach it, they they finished four points adrift of Newcastle um, in, uh, in well 2000 I think it was 2002 2003, um, which led to O'Leary being dismissed and 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 then it was it, that that was it. They started stripping assets. They couldn't afford to. Um, the the biggest problem that they had was that instead of considering players as liabilities um, in a financial sense, which as we've already discussed, you know the number of injuries that they had, um, a lot of these players did become liabilities. They they saw them as assets um, in terms of how they they sort of valued the club. So when those players 
were out of form or they became injured um, and when they started selling them off they didn't the, the money just wasn't there well i mean they'd spent so much it didn't matter how many players they sold that that you know they no. they weren't in a position that they were going to get they were going to kind of be able to you know to core it back and you know i think the thing is this is the season where they spent basically nothing like 5 million on bridges not a great deal of money um what's what's Huckabee, 4 million whereas you know a season after this they go and buy ferdinand for a british record like 18 19 million um Viduka costs what 12 something like that you know no Viduka about half that he's about 60 yeah and but yeah they, but they they basically just and they start buying players they don't need uh, not because they wanted to enhance the, the squad they just basically start buying any british person that's available and is highly rated and it, seth it, johnson it, it becomes a bit of a mess because it's like suddenly o'leary isn't really sure what his best team is anymore um and by, and by the time o'leary's gone you know none of the managers that come afterwards seem to have a clue how to assemble what they've got in front of them because the team that goes down i know we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves but the team that goes down still got an awful lot of good players like that team should never ever have gone down um but obviously you know the emotional fatigue of what's going on must have been a big part of that and again i mean we, we talk about what i mean what kill was saying when when he left i mean how, how much truth is in it is is open to debate but it kind of adds up uh given what happened um but i mean th- I, I think this is it's a conversation worth having another day because i think it's the end of the story is is as sort of perversely engaging as the start of it um so i I think think they deserve to be remembered for what they were at this time you know a a really entertaining refreshing young bunch of footballers um having fun and being really successful with um, a manager who you know, still at the time, um, didn't have any failures behind him. And, uh, you know, that's always a good story. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you, you talked about Michael Dubry. I've, I've read in preparation for this episode uh, um, an article in which he, he he talked about that time. And he said that even through, you know, the, the back end of it, when things were falling apart, the, the players themselves, they, they were very close-knit. They got on well. They enjoyed playing together. Um and it was really sort of the, the the financial mismanagement that led to the, the, the team just being ripped apart just by and a lot of those players were sold for probably less than their value simply because Leeds had to raise money and there were clubs who sort of profited off that. I mean, I know Ferdinand goes for for thirty million or something like that, yeah, but they made eleven million. Uh, Ferdinand was the jewel in the crown, though, isn't he? That's the difference. Yeah, Milner goes for next to nothing um, to Newcastle. Um, Spurs do quite well out of uh, Leeds. We we totally assets. Newcastle and Spurs just completely raid them. I think we we ended up with Woodgate, um, uh, Bowyer. I think Bowyer comes straight to us. Uh, um, Milner as well. Yeah, we Um, we get... We get Robbie Keane uh, and we get uh, Robinson uh, and and we also get Aaron Lennon and so yeah, very Man uh, City pick up Fowler and Danny Mills and 
it's uh, it, it's a, it's a sad end. But again, it's a discussion for another day. Um, but yeah, as you say, Neil, it's uh, it, it was a really exciting team to watch. I think they, um, you know, they, they 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 didn't really mount a serious challenge to Manchester United that season. I think that everyone knew at some point the wheels would come off, but I, it, it was fun. It, it was fun to watch. They were they were good value. Although it is a a, a a thing for another day to look at the way it comes apart, it, they, these overlap because the reason they start um, to overspend that following season is to compete on all fronts, to compete in the Champions League. And that mm. run to the semi-final uh, that we spoke about earlier on, where they eventually get um, picked apart in the away leg by Valencia. But that run, they were so popular. That might actually be even more than the league run when they had the... Uh, all of England behind them, apart from you know Man United fans and whatever. Um, but that is already when they are living beyond their means because the previous year, yes, they're spending five million on bridges or whatever, but they've just recouped however many million on Hasselbank. But mm. as we said, they've already bought the court, they've bought the Duca, they've bought Matteo, they've bought Rio Ferdinand, and by the end of the year, they've bought Robbie Keane. And these are all big transfers. And I think it's that we only use 19 players. Alan Smith went on a big goal drought. We can't rely on such a small core of players that they do. Um, as I think you said, Neil, they just start splashing money out on anyone and everyone that has a reputation so that they never get caught that short again. And that's where it falls apart. Um, so it, it falls apart as they are at the zenith. And it's so it, it, they almost don't realize the sands are shifting under them. So by the time the Ferdinand transfer happens, it's already over. Uh, and then it's just a case of waiting two years for it all to play out. And it mm. was the sl- it was a slow death. That's what really is quite memorable about the way Leeds go down. Because they stay up, don't they? That's the thing is that, you know, when they're really starting to struggle, they stay up. They, they finish 15th yeah. or something. And it's yeah. the season afterwards that they go. It's the, the Arsenal Invincible season. It's the season that they go down and... Um, it's it's yeah it's 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 a strange one it's a really strange one but i think you know the the thing that was really controversial at the time is that is that ridsdale basically kept all of this mismanagement secret and so the Ferdinand sale wasn't even pitched as them needing the money they pitched it as oh he wanted to go we don't want an unhappy player in the dressing room they didn't pitch it as we desperately need 30 million pounds because we're you know, struggling financially. It was only probably that Christmas that it became really apparent. And he, I think he gives a press conference, Ridsdale, where he admits it at some point. Um, and that's where things get really, really pear-shaped. Yeah. But he actually even stuck to that line in his book, which uh, for weird reasons I read once. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why I read, this is football obsession that is worse. Why I read the Peter Ridsdale book, I have no idea. But I did. Uh, I, I, actually, this this is a conversation. What's the weirdest football book you've ever read? The most Pro- probably the most... that one. <laughs> like, I mean, it's actually a really good football book. But if uh, if you ever get a chance to read Left Foot Forward uh, by Gary Nelson, it's a um, it's a sort of autobiography of a real journeyman pro, um, and it's very very insightful as to kind of what it's like for you know that sort of player who is well he he played for Charlton in the the, t- the top division but he was very much a kind of player that bounced around from club to club made a lot of appearances but was never famous or or rich or anything it's it's a very good read there you go there's our recommendation of the week 
just to cycle back to that uh, that, that thing a minute, because in that book he talks about how um, Ferdinand gave a uh, a statement to the press about no, I'm happy to stay at Leeds or whatever, and uh, he, he talks about how buoyed he was by you know, oh great, we're going to keep Rio Ferdinand, and then he comes into the office and says, and apparently Rio like laughed at him. Well, this is the way he tells it. Rio laughs at him. He says, no, that's just for the press. You know, I'm going to Man United, right? I mean. Again, it might be like the Harry Kewell thing earlier on. Take it with a pinch of salt because Peter Ridsdale might not be the height of trustworthiness, if that's not too controversial a thing to say. <laughs> but you know, that's the way he told it when he wrote uh, when he wrote his autobiography a couple of years later, or several years later, I suppose it would have been. I think it's safe to say Peter Ridsdale might be one of the biggest narcissists who's ever been involved in English football, and that takes in a lot of ground. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, I mean, that's like that. Ken Bates and Doug Ellis <laughs> and all sorts of people. <laughs> Doug Ellis, who, who, who named a stand after himself. He's right up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, United We Fall. It was about uh, three years after Leeds actually got relegated. Um, boardroom Truths About the Beautiful Game. And he, um, David O'Leary called the book Deranged. <laughs> <laughs> also been used to describe David O'Leary at certain points in his career. Yeah. Well, he managed Villa, so uh, I've got a few thoughts on that eventually. I can hear O'Leary actually saying that. <laughs> it's really in my head. But yeah, he, you know, just looking at what he does to, to Leeds, yeah, you're going to take it with a pinch of salt, aren't you? The incredible thing is that this fit and proper persons test for... Um... That they put through sort of people who run football clubs for they let him in charge of Cardiff City and I think he did yeah. something similar to them wasn't he involved with the sort of the Vincent Tan takeover that ended up with was I think he was involved with that yeah well, money talks if you can get the money behind you you know it, it he did seem to have the ability to to get a businessman to part with their cash for short periods of time yeah, teflon completely oh, Didn't absolutely. He, he practically, practically bankrupted plymouth argyle is that not right that is last uh job in football he, he, they and staff went without pay for however long is that not ridsdale again it could have been there's a lot of we're having to look up a lot of things tonight yeah and that's going to be the nature of these conversations i think yeah, it's just like, didn't that happen? And we all think yeah. 20 years ago, it's like, even, Jesus. Even to this day, oh, no, he's, he's still advising Preston North End, advising. I mean, uh, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? Uh, I think they won't let a murderous crown prince take over Newcastle United. It's just complete double standards. Yeah, a rich one at that. Yeah. Think, think of all, think of all the tax that would come off that. I think you're the only one for that. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, it's... I don't know. Get, get, you know, as much as I don't want to see more, you know, rich benefactors here. Get, get Mike Ashley out of the bloody game, please. Yeah, there is that. Oh, the thing is, he's just, he's just started, he's just started buying players again. It's weird. Maybe he's, he's, he's going to do his down in pints thing again. Why? When he used to turn <laughs> up with the shirt off and down the pints with the fans. 
Yeah. I, I think I my, like... my favourite one was when him and Dennis Wise watched uh, some YouTube highlights of a player, some random player, and then just decided to buy him. Oh, who was that? <laughs> I can't remember who it was, but I remember when he said that to be crap, like, Dennis Wise said something like, oh yeah, we only watched it on YouTube. It's not quite um, Graham Souness signed in George Weir's cousin, though, is it? No, no, that's, yeah, that, <laughs> that's the ultimate that. grift, that one. No, fortunately, we, Graham Souness was uh, was long gone from uh, Newcastle think, at that point. I think so. I just dredged a name, because I was still watching a lot of football at that point, and uh, Joe, you might you might not even remember the name. Uh, Ignacio Gonzalez. Oh no, I I I remember the name. I, 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 again, I can't remember. I can't remember what he looks like. I can't remember a single thing he did. But yeah, the the, the name rings a bell. I think that but, might be um, the YouTube lad. Yeah, I mean, there have been some terrible people in in English football over the last twenty years or so. But I don't know. I mean, Mike Ashley or Peter Ridsdale. I think I'll take. I'll take Ridsdale. <laughs> just because yeah. it's like. I, d- I don't know. I mean, Mike, Mike Ashley. Never, to be fair, Mike Ashley's never never bankrupted us. Um, <laughs> tricky one, that. I just think, I mean, just going back to the um, the, the idea of him drinking pints in the stands with the with the fans is, is that just like that that's that's been his favorite gimmick that's the one that people like the most so he's going to go back to that one that well, like a nostalgia run that and sending people extremely large mugs in the post yeah <laughs> <laughs> good grief should we cycle back to leeds to wrap this one up because uh, my guess is a bit <laughs> of a departure um I mean, yeah. I mean, it, this was um, it, it was a sad end to the story, but I think um, yeah, this is um, it, it was an exciting team that David O'Leary and I suppose George Graham had had put together um, to a to a large extent as well. Um, yeah, so, Graham's um, the one who signs Alan Smith and Woodgate and Robinson and and a lot of those kids come in under uh, George Graham and and in the case of Woodgate, it's not like he was a local lad; he'd been kind of bought in from the Middlesbrough Academy uh, and developed there. So um, so there is that going on that that prep preparatory work uh, in the season or two beforehand. I mean, the the academy must be doing some great work at this stage, and obviously there's still Milner and Robinson to come and mm-hmm. Aaron Lennon as well. Aaron Lennon, so, so it's uh, it's it's funny how these things sort of uh, fall apart, really. And the fact that they felt they had to rely on bringing and spending huge transfer fees when they had this sort of plethora of youth coming through the academy. I mean, particularly as United had prospered so much from having that core of homegrown players grow together. You know, you think mm. if if Leeds had left this side alone, more or less, maybe you could have, you know, bought Bazooka just for an extra extra few goals a season but you basically could have kept this this side together i know i don't even really need know if you needed ferdinand and um no you know and they and they probably could have done really well for quite a few seasons after this and it's kind of it's a cautionary tale but they they reached they reached too far didn't they they icarus they flew too close to the sun yeah it's buying with no sense buying without any regard to what you actually need um and it's a couple of years down the line that that will uh, will really start to, to to bite, and probably with the Robbie Fowler and Seth Johnson transfers. Um, 
But can I uh, try and end on more of an up note? Because this was a really positive team, uh, one that we all kind of liked watching. And we, we spoke about the Leeds curse, and there's one guy who really defied it, and we almost got in full circle, was, was Nigel Martin, who was not only excellent uh, and became... Uh, he, he broke the, the transfer record for a goalkeeper, uh, uh, cost a million pounds uh, in, when Palace signed him years before. Uh, that's even before Schmeichel joins Man United. We talked about how much of a bargain he was last time. Uh, becomes Leeds United's best goalkeeper. Is sold on after all the Leeds debacle. He's sold on, um, and he's got a choice of going a couple of places and chooses to go to Everton to be the backup, the understudy to Richard Wright. And is so good that he displaces Wright and ends up kind of having extending his career into a third decade. Uh, so Nigel Martin is the man who breaks the Leeds hoodoo of that whole kind of period. Um, that isn't a kid, I guess. Well, it isn't a kid or Ferdinand, I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, Ferdinand, yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rio Ferdinand, the, the record-breaking yeah. international, yeah. He yeah. did, did all right at the end of Rio. He was that drugs test, didn't he, Rio, so... That's true. Nigel, yeah. Ma- Nigel Martin never let anyone down in quite the same way. I mean, you know, <laughs> not, I mean, yeah, Nigel Martin, if, if David Seaman hadn't existed, he'd have been England's undisputed goalkeeper. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there, were, there were times where it was, you know, there, there were people saying that, yeah, he should be replacing Seaman at, at certain points over that time. And, you know, mm. he, you know, you'd think if it was another era, he would have, he would have got quite a few, few more caps for, for England. He just ran parallel to Seaman at that time, you know. It's just timing, isn't it? I'm going to rescue it. They hadn't signed Ferdinand yet. Martin, he's still to come. Martin's in the side in this season. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Fair. Oh, there yeah. we go. The ninety nine two thousand season. Nigel Martin's the one good luck story. Well done. Well done. <laughs> we'll leave it there as far as Leeds go. Um, just a quick look forward to next week. Uh, we are looking a few years into the future, and it's the arrival of the special one at Stamford Bridge. We're going to look at Chelsea's uh, title-winning side of 2004-2005. Early thoughts about this one, lads? i got a lot of memories of that season. That's that's one quite well ingrained on my on my memory. Uh, I remember the transfers more than anything else and people coming in with, with big reputations, some of them who lived up to it and some who didn't. I think the thing for me was that once he'd got his best 11, you know, they... They were really solid at the back and just didn't let any... I think Czech lets in about 16 goals all season. Uh, and then, you know, sort of from about November onwards, they just absolutely steamroller people. And Robin and Duff in particular, uh, I remember being just so, so deadly. So um, certainly a team, I think, that was better to watch than people remember Mourinho teams being. There was two halves that season, as I recall, and they yeah. were electric in the second half. That's right. They they were really solid, and then once they'd kind of got that base, they just yeah just destroy people. I my main memory of that season is uh, seeing Didier Drogba um, come in and be such a success, and he 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 played for Marseille the season before, and Marseille had knocked Newcastle out of the UEFA Cup, um, and I, we were linked with him over that summer, and I think we. We obviously we sort of missed out, and uh, um, and then seeing him sort of score those goals and be be part of such a successful team, it was, you know, I was, I was a bit salty about that. Mm. 
and it takes a year or so for him to really like fully settle uh he, he did very well as a debut season but i can recall that there were people who were still not 100% convinced and that's just crazy when yeah. you consider what he's going to what he's going to do the year after with a year under his belt yeah he plays um, he plays good johnson a lot Mourinho, in that in that in that first year he was a hell of a player to be fair he was yeah. johnson was a really good player I mean, when, we'll, they let him, when they let him go, he goes to Barcelona, which I think speaks volumes. Yeah. I mean, we'll we'll go into a lot more of this next week, and I think we'll actually end up talking about that sort of three-year arc between Mourinho's appointment and the the as we know now to be inevitable self-destruction. Um, but um, certainly that that first season is uh, is is worth talking about because it it it, well, it changes the. It changes the shape of the Premiership, doesn't it? It's it's uh, sure. it becomes it, it, an animal after yeah, that. It takes it from United and Arsenal to being, you know, three teams at least. So, you know, it's kind of at least a bit of a a bit of um, difference in terms of title winners. Yeah, get a sugar daddy and you can play. Peter Ridsdale need not apply. <laughs> <laughs> Any early bets on who the Darren Ferguson of the Chelsea 2005 side will be? Uh, oh, yeah, it's easy. It's uh, Steve Sidwell, isn't it? <laughs> he doesn't he, come for a couple of years, Does he not? No. No, no. Because he, no, he, 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 he played he, for... He, he had a very good season yeah, for Reading. That's, he, he hasn't even been promoted with Reading yet. Yeah, he's a few uh, years off, I think. Who's it going to be, then? This is going to be more likely a um, Tiago or a Yuri Yarosek or somebody. Celestine Babayaro. Was he still there? No. Oh, was he still there I then? Think he, he might have been playing for us by then. I don't know. I, I, again, we're, we're going to have to look this up for next week. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll, yeah. We'll do that next week. We'll have to do our research. Well, um, we'll we'll leave it there. We'll wrap it up. Thanks very much again, gents. We'll. Um, We'll look forward to talking about Chelsea again next week. Um, Apart from that, we're all done. You've been listening to Four at the Back with Joe, Mazza, Neil and Pete. If you enjoyed Four at the Back this week, give us a follow on Twitter at four at the back pod that's the number four at the back pod or on instagram at the same handle join us next week and see if we do better thanks for tuning in